The floor is mine. Well, thank you. Um, guys, thanks for being here. From the bottom of my heart, thank you. I was able to give some tours. Uh, I was here earlier to give tours, and I think there's tours happening later, Tim. Is that correct? There are some tours when this is done. So is, the fun thing for me is I gave a tour. Uh, I got to do one tour, and as I walk around, the, the, as we tell the story of the factory, you cannot tell the story of the factory without talking about, used to be Paradise Mennonite, and now Grace Point Church. Uh, it was this church that, in 1994, that pulled together with two other churches to go throughout the community and do a survey to discover, hey, we could really use some support for our teenagers in the community, that started the factory at the old sewing factory. That's where we got our name. And then as that moved forward, and um, the work that you see Eric right here with us today, the work that, that kind of formed out of that with Katie Byler, it always would tell the story and how that question of fourth thousand man hours or twenty thousand dollars as he went out as Tim and um, others here from the community went out and said hey what could we do what difference could we make and now we've got this space over here that again you guys have a little plaque on the wall there because of the work that you've done and then even this space that we're in, how fun is it? This, the dream of this room is to be an event center to help drive revenue. This is an old building. <laughs> this building, this, the, where we sit right now, was built in the 20s, 1920s. And the infrastructure of this building and the cost of this building is, is, a, is a heavy burden for an organization like us. So we've been looking for creative ways to sustain this, our work without putting a harder and heavier burden out on donors. And so this space is part of that. And you guys played a key role, a great point um, person that's a part of your church project managed this space for us from a volunteer position we're able to pull this first phase off for ninety thousand dollars because of that so again you guys play a role in it so how cool it is to have our first real gathering event here to be you guys so thank you from the bottom of my heart um, your fingerprints uh, are all over uh, this ministry and this work so thank you now, as I was thinking about what to share today, um, this has been kind of, Tim, when he talk, asked me to share, originally it wasn't going to be here. I was going to fill in for him because he was going to have off, I believe, and here he is working today. So I'm not sure. Maybe you get off next week. I don't know what we can work out with that. Uh, but it was, um, I was beginning to think what I was going to share, and so it's kind of morphed and changed as I was, it kind of came here. So what I would like to do, I want to share from my heart um, a, a, the first word of our mission is the word empower. I want to talk about that word. My heart would be that every one of us leaves here this morning feeling a sense of empowerment. The way we say it is we exist to empower people, individuals, to connect them to resources and to build community. You see part of the building community taking place here. You'll see I'm connecting the resources. If you've been in the tour, you'll see we talk about the adult advocate program, and we don't define poverty as what's in your Venmo or PayPal or checking account. We define it as a lack of resources or an option to those resources in six key areas. But the first word is empower. Now that word is absolutely crucial. Now, you'll hear it said a lot this way when you talk about organizations like ours. You'll maybe hear it said, you hear it in America talked about, we don't want to give people a handout, we want to give them a hand up. Have you ever heard that statement? That's kind of what we're talking about, but I, it's really not fully. When we use the word empower, it goes far deeper and far broader than that statement. We believe in empowerment because we believe that every single person, every one of us in this room is created in the image of God. And if you look at the people around you, just take a moment. Just, why do you do that? Just look at the people beside you. Probably sit next to someone you love, right? Maybe someone you don't know. 
When we talk about the church, the church isn't a building, the church is people. So look at the people around here, right? Some of you are smiling right now. Some of you are, look like you have some, you know, making up to do. <laughs> you look at those people around you, uh, maybe um, every person that you look at is created in the image of God. What does that mean? What does that mean? Now, it means there's dignity and worth and value. It means that it elevates humans above all other parts of God's creation because no other part of God's creation, my dog that I love to death, is not created in the image of God. So it elevates us above all creation. It puts value and worth and dignity. But more than that, what it really captures is this word empowerment. Genesis chapter 1, 27 and 28 says, it, it states it this way. It says, in the image of God, he created them. Male and female, it states, which is so important. Men and women are both equal, created in the image of God. In the image of God, he created them. Men and women, he created them in his image. Now, the verse goes on, and it says it this way. This is a powerful. The next statement is he says, so I'm going to give, God says, I want to give mankind something to do. I want you to be fruitful and increase in number, and then I want you to rule and reign and subdue the earth. Right there is, is the significance of what it means to create the image of God. So first, we have this innate ability and capacity to multiply, to grow, to advance. If you look at all parts of society, you see that stamped in society. We're always trying to go up and to the right. We want to grow. We want to mature. We want to get better. We want to be more. We want to transcend. We want to pass on. We get excited to have grandkids, and we get excited to, to move and advance and have our own children. We are all wired to do that. But then the second statement that really captures the empowerment word, rule and reign. So from the very beginning, you have been designed in your mother's womb to rule and to reign. Every single one of you at some capacity has the ability to exercise control, autonomy over your life. Now we see this, I've got four kids. I saw this early on when they first were born, right? And they start to grow into toddlers. It's mine you ever hear that phrase? It's my stuff. They want their space. They took my things. That's beautiful. A little selfish at times. But the beauty of that is it's the image of God stamped in them. It's their autonomy. It's their stuff. It's, it's this ownership. It's this empowerment. It's this, I am going to make choices. I'm going to do things that exert power and control. And that, that's all a great thing. Now, <laughs> What happens to that? We live in a broken world. And that, that, that has been robbed of us. You don't need to live real long in life to have some level of pain smack you in the face. Or to have others begin to take that rule and reign and abuse other people with it. That was not God's design. Slavery, Tim mentioned, was not God's design. That's one person taking this, this autonomy and this power and this authority that, that's birthed in us by nature and using it to hurt and to control and to manipulate other people. Or maybe you've had life and trauma hit you in such a way that you don't feel that you're in any control of your life. Right? You've had things happen to you that, that make you feel very out of control, that, that everything's happening to you, that people happen to you, that life happens to you, and you, nothing that you do matters. Sin has entered our reality in a way that has, that has deeply impacted this reality of what it means to be created in the image of God. 
But why we say empower is because that is the heart, to me, of the Christian message. Have you ever heard the word gospel, good news? It does not, that message does not start with you're a sinner, there's good news to save you from that sin. That good news starts with you were born and created in the image of God. And let's believe that. Let's own that. Let's feel that. Now, it's broken. It's not complete. But let's step into that and help restore that. And that's when Jesus enters the picture. If you have your Bible, um, Genesis chapter, or your, your smartphone, you can grab it there. I'm sorry I didn't get it up on the screen for you. Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. Or chapter 3, verse 8. So God creates man and woman. He puts them in this magnificent garden, this magnificent world. It's, it's, it's gorgeous. And the thing that's amazing to me is God gives them everything. He says, it's all for you. There's just these two trees, and one of them, I, you can't eat from it. <laughs> Classic people, right? One thing you can't do. You have, you have all these other options. They're all yours. It's all yours. It's all for you. Just one thing I ask of you. Now, those of you who know the story, what happens? It's like when you put the wet paint sign on the bench, right? What do you do? I don't know. Is it, is it wet? Like you want to go touch it. It's like the one thing. Don't this one thing. And they, they're drawn to it. And they begin to believe this reality that, that they're tempted with God's holding out on me. He established these boundaries. Well, he's established them because he's holding out on me. And, and, I, and so they step and they eat. Now, chapter 2 ends, this, this powerful statement, it's chapter 2 ends, verse 25, the man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Shame was not a part of the human existence. There's this beautiful relationship, this powerful magic almost. This, this, I, I imagine it was probably electric at some capacity. No shame. Now, chapter 3 comes along, they eat of the fruit, and then they're like, oh, Oh, whoa, now wait a minute, what is this? And they go and they sew some leaves together and they cover themselves up and they go and they hide. Now, verse 8. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And look what it says they did. What did they do? What did they do? They hid. So God steps out and comes towards them. Now I want you to see, this is powerful. The first words that God speaks after sin has entered humanity, brokenness is now here. What would you expect an almighty, all-powerful creator God who told his kids, don't eat of this tree? What would you expect to hear? Some of you may be hearing your mom or dad in your voice. Yeah, I know what my dad would say. And be carrying the belt and the stick along with it, right? He's going to lay the law down. But look what God does. He works with the fact that they're created in his image. He works with the reality that they are wired to rule and to reign. He empowers them. He does what our adult advocates do here at the factory in, in many ways. The cool of the morning, he walks out. They're hiding. 
from the Lord God among the trees. Now, why does a person hide? Why do you hide? Why do my kids hide? <laughs> if they've done something they should not have done. My kids never do that. But maybe your kids do something they should not have done, right? Why do our kids, when our kids do things they should not have done and they go and hide, why are they hiding? They're hiding because they know they shouldn't have done it. No one needed to tell them this is wrong. Shame on you. They feel it internally. This is a powerful, significant understanding. If you're going to walk with people, we generally know I've blown it. They're hiding from the Lord God among the trees. Verse 9, but then God called to the man. What does he say? What does he say? Where are you? Where are you? Now, this question has impacted me deeply over the last eight months. I engage this for the first time in a very real way over the last eight months, and I've begun to shift to ask this question of me every single morning. Because what I've come to learn is when chaos has hit our world, so we're designed to rule and to reign. We're designed to exercise control in our lives in, in a way that, that, that my actions are going to shape the outcome of my life. That's what we're designed to do. We're designed to manage this world in God's absence, physically, in his physical absence. We're designed to manage this world. So if that's what we're designed to do. Brokenness enters and we have a hard time doing it. And there's sin all around us and there's this, this ache and this pain and this abuse of my autonomy. And, me, and, and what I find what's happening is I still want to try and gain control. I'm reading a book right now on um, crazy makers and how to interact with people in your lives that at times spin crazy out. And the author of that book uh, talks about this reality. And he, he makes this statement. He says, the ego, the part of us that wants to be in control, relies heavily on denial to remain in control. We live as human beings with this unbelievable capacity for the illusion of control. We're designed to be in control, but we lose control. So what do we do? We deny that we're not in control. And we do this in all kinds of ways. We do it by, some of us, by exerting our power and controlling others in a sinful way. Some of us do this by medicating ourselves. And, and I was talking with someone recently. I've lost a lot of weight over the last, um, I've really worked hard at that over the last year. And I was talking with someone else who was doing that. And here's what he said to me. He was in a hard time. And I kind of thought about it. I was like, maybe this is why I lost weight. I don't know. But he said, you know what? I, why I lost weight is was the one thing. He was in a really tough season. And he said, the one thing that I could control was my weight. That's why he lost weight. But I think about the things that I do in my life. So I think about my day today. I got out of bed this morning. What, who chose what time to set my alarm this morning for me? It was me. Who chose what I was going to wear today? It was me. The car that I got in to drive was me. The purchase that car, I made that decision. What I'm going to eat this morning, what I'm going to eat this afternoon, if I'm going to watch football. So much of our lives are built around this illusion of I am in control. And I work hard to be in control. 
This author of this book says it this way. This is his quote. He says, we are unlikely to seek truth if we feel unable to manage it. So when I'm beginning to feel out of control, I am unlikely to chase 110% of that truth down if I am unlikely to think, if that truth hits me, I don't know what to do with it, I'm unlikely to go after it. Because again, we're wired to be in control. We want this control and we don't know what to do with this. So what we have a tendency to do is we hide as human beings. Now we do this in all kinds of ways. We hide behind careers. We hide behind addictions. We hide behind um, all kinds of stuff. We hide. And God's invitation to Adam and Eve is don't hide. Don't hide. Where are you? Get honest with where you are. Where are you? Now, if you go to the next question that God asks is, (laughs) who told you you were naked? I love this question. Who told you that? I didn't tell you that. You figured it out on your own. Did you eat at the tree? Oh, yeah, you did. And then what he does is if you look at the movement of the story, he gives a curse. But it's so important to know he does not curse mankind. Women, you're going to have a hard time having babies. Right? Some of you say amen. Well, that's been hard. That is, I see someone's back there going, yes, it's hard. That's hard. I've witnessed that a few times. I do not envy my wife at all, and I'm glad God made me a man just for that reason alone. I've seen it. It's hard. But he does not curse the woman. He doesn't say you're cursed. He said there's going to be consequences of your actions, and it's going to hurt, and it's going to hurt bad. But you're not cursed. To man, he says, you're going to have a hard time providing. The ground is going to have thistles. For you to get your food is going to be hard work. But he doesn't curse man. It's beautiful. And then he gives a promise. Look at chapter 3, verse 15. He gives this promise. He says, sorry, it's not verse 15. Ah, where is it? I just lost it. Oh, doggone it. I just, hold on, guys. There it is, verse 15. It is verse 15. I was on the wrong thing. So he says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. It's this veiled promise that the rest of Scripture begins this story. So people say, what is the Bible? The Bible is the unfolding of Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3 in its entirety. So if you think about a heel wound, if someone takes out my heel, I'm going to limp, but I'm not going to die. If someone strikes me in the head, I am going to die. I can't sustain a blow here. It can be fatal. So he says, guys, I'm going to make a promise to you. I'm going to fix this. And then what he does is he makes garments And they aren't out of fig leaves, he kills and sheds blood. And I think it's a picture to mankind to say, listen, it's a mess, but we're going to work hard to solve this, and it's going to be costly. But I'm in this with you. So here's what I've learned as I um, 
kind of bring us to an end here. Here's what I've done. Here's how I'm going to make this practical with us. What I have learned to do, first of all, I've learned to say to myself, Adam, you have a propensity to live in denial. You have a propensity, Adam, to to not chase truth for all that it's worth unless you believe that God is working something together for good and truth is going to benefit you and the people around you. Go after it. So that's where I've started with that. Then I've started every day. I want to encourage you to think about this. Consider doing this. When I get out of bed, the first thing I'll do is I'll go to the, when I get into the bathroom, I look in the mirror and I ask this question. Adam, where are you? And I've learned to be honest. And I've learned to be honest about me. Here's one of the things we do. We hide behind others. So I might say, I've learned to start to say things like, I'm angry today. I'm hurt. I'm disappointed. I'm really scared. I am really scared. I'm overwhelmed. I'm depressed. I'm sad. I'm fill in the blank. But I've learned, I'm I'm learning, I'm learning, I'll say. I haven't figured out just to really get gut level honest with God and say, here is where I'm at. Here's what I'm experiencing. And what I have learned through this journey is I had a tendency to put it out on others. So for example, I might look in the mirror when early in my journey in this, I would say, I feel misunderstood. Well, let me ask you, is it possible for me to feel that? What I'm really saying there is I'm hiding behind, let's say Eric and I are in a relationship and we're talking. Who's doing the misunderstanding if there's misunderstanding? It's not me, it's out on him. But I'll sit there and say, well, I feel misunderstood. Well, I, how do you feel misunderstood? I could feel hurt. I could feel alone. I could feel dejected. There's a lot of things I can feel in that, but misunderstood's not, that doesn't, does that connect? It's not a feeling I can have. That's out there on another human. So this is where I've really learned to just get honest and stare in that mirror and say, okay, Adam, you don't feel misunderstood. What are you really feeling? I feel alone. When that meeting happened yesterday and this thing unfolded, I felt alone. Was I misunderstood? I don't know. He may not have misunderstood me at all. But I feel alone. God, I'm going to look in the mirror today and I feel alone. Now I'll end with this. What do you do with this? Well, there's a Savior, and his name is Jesus. That story in, in Genesis 3.15 says, there's one coming. I'm going to strike his, I'm going to, he's going to have his heel struck, but he himself is going to take the head off of our enemy, Satan. I'll end with this story. Um, it's one of my favorites lately. It's in John chapter 8. It's uh, the woman who's caught in adultery. Some of you know it well. She's drug out into a setting like this. It's actually in the temple where it happens. And so there's lots of people gathering. There's lots of people here. And they pulls them on out. And, and um, the religious leaders say, hey, listen, Jesus, she has been caught in adultery. What should we do with her? Now, they're trying to trap Jesus because they, they have stones and are ready to kill her. And they're trying to get Jesus to say, they say it in the story, which you read it this week. They say, listen, Jesus, the law of Moses says she should be stoned. 
Jesus does something so fascinating in this moment. He walks over and he gets in the ground and he begins writing in the dirt. I don't know what he's doing or what he's writing, but then it says this, this makes this powerful statement. It says he stood up. He stood up. So here this woman is, she is being accused and she is being condemned and her life is literally,